Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. I'm sitting here with the ginger bow hunter himself in studio. How you doing, Jacob? I'm doing good. I'm excited. Just got done wearing out some crappie, so uh, it's been a it's been a great week. But uh, this week, we on this I guess breakdown episode uh, or outro, talking all things with um, really with Anthony Troncall, who's my uncle, who's been on the podcast a few times, uh, along with uh, Alan Summerford and Kyle Liebarter from Native Habitat Project. And dude, that was a super fascinating. But um, other than that, uh, we got a lot to talk about because it was a very fascinating episode. There's some stuff we didn't even talk about that we covered. That's gonna be in the video part of it. Yeah. And because uh, we did a whole walk through the property, and it was mind blowing what we found out there. But what's been up to you? Or, what's been up to you? What's what have you oh been up gosh. to? Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Words, yeah. man. Words is hard. Golly. Dude. Oh, dude, I I enjoyed the episode. Um, what I don't I don't know if we covered it a ton in the video or in the in the podcast, but we videoed a whole bunch of stuff out there on Anthony's property with Kyle and Alan. 
uh, just going over basically what prairie he has intact on his property still. So we went and we looked at all kinds of different plants. We looked at uh, how Anthony basically ended up cutting his property and then just over the years, you know, has missed some opportunities, I guess, to to really make it like prime. And now he's got sweet gum, you know, kind of encroaching on some of that prairie. He's got um, Chinese privet, Chinese privet, some bamboo, yep. some non-native river cane, stuff like that. Um, and kudzu on part of and it. And kudzu. And one of the more interesting parts about it to me was going over the native legumes and stuff. Mm. And I just, I brought it up in the episode just because I found it really interesting. But where Alan was talking about how the fact that y- like your your bean field is not like actually growing your deer. Or it's not growing your deer how you think it is, you yeah. know, because we made the point that here in early June, the soybeans are like this tall right now. And those deer are already branching out on their antlers. They've already got brow tines, a lot of them. Yeah. And so Alan made the point like, hey, is is are these beans growing your deer? Or is your native habitat, all these legumes and stuff that are growing, you know, low to the ground in March when green up first happens? Or, or is that growing your deer? Because, I mean, that's like creating like the base for them, you know, to grow off of for the rest of the summer. Um, I guess to put on mass and stuff. And so. even Anthony said, like you're saying, because you're, you're kind of making that gesture for the viewers, how tall those beans are. You know, they're three, four inches tall, maybe. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, even Anthony said, he's like, you know, a month behind. You know, they should already be at least knee high by this point. But even with that being said, those deer, the second their, their antlers are falling off and in, in the springtime, they're starting to grow back and they're mm-hmm. trying to build that body weight back up, become more healthy again, uh, build the body weight in order for them to, you know, be able to put on their antlers and put on also just, just more body weight in general and kind of grow. And that was kind of really what Alan was really hit, trying to hit hard on is like, that's the time of the year, you know, throughout the summer too, but that's the time of year that they're really putting on all that body weight, trying to get them back up to speed to a yeah, healthy body weight in order for them to put on the antlers. And, uh, it was, it was interesting to kind of see it. Cause again, like all the legumes, which again, Andrew, you can talk about, you know, what is a legume for listeners again, and kind of the, uh, the similarities of just that family that kind of mm-hmm. soybeans are coming from, but you know, that was all over the property. There was, you know, one area, I think there was five different ones within like 10 feet yeah. that the deer were all browsing on. Yeah. And they do the same thing as, as a soybean does, like those native ones. They fix nitrogen into the soil, which means that they're they're putting nitrogen back into the soil. So it helps your it helps your soil be healthy too. And they have, you know, a high amount of protein and all the stuff that deer need. Like I'm not I don't know everything about, but I know that they're really good, you know. And uh walking out there with them was just super eye opening. It's a really fun experience. So we got all that videoed and we're gonna be working on getting that video out over the next couple weeks. Uh, and then of course we talked about old High Tower. That was that was pretty fun going over the story of High Tower. That that deer is just a a huge buck, you know. And and it, you know it's all relative of of where you live, but I feel like that's a big deer for most people who probably listen to this show. I mean, if not like everyone that Espe- listens to this show, especially in the deep south. I mean, it's not you know 150, 160, 170 inch deer, but for what he is, and again for the properties came off of, it's extremely impressive. Um, and especially only he's like 13 and a half inches wide. Yeah, scored like 139. I think it's like six eights after drying um, for 60 days. So it is a very, very, very impressive deer, but not even that, like to me, that was impressive. But the really impressive thing is how big his body was compared yeah. to all the other deer. Again, he dressed one, uh, 187. And, um, uh, that is just incredible for that property because every deer that I'm aware of that's been shot down there for the last 15 to 18 years, 
like the biggest body deer live weight, not dressed, but live weight, probably 170 pounds ish, yeah. like in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was, you know, live weight was probably, you know, 40 plus pounds heavier than that. Um, which is, again, it's kind of like an anomaly, but, you know, kind of a, a big point of that conversation was how can you make that deer and that size deer the average? Like, yeah. And, and, and build that into like, you know, that's your average buck in, you know, six yeah, to seven man. years. Um, I can be like Alan Summerford and shoot just giants all the time, man. Yeah. Like drop time bucks galore. I'm yeah. telling you. And you know, that, that's a, that's kind of the interesting about this conversation. Cause again, guys, you know, we, we cover so much on the podcast that is very hunting specific tactic driven, uh, content. Um, you know, a lot of the guys hunt public land, some of the guys hunt private land as well. And again, you can use a lot of these tactics on both places, but an exciting thing for us is kind of seeing behind the scenes. If you do have opportunity to own property, whether it's family property, it's your own property you pers- personally bought, or even maybe you have a lease through a private landowner who would let you do a lot of habitat work. Just what could be done outside of just planting food plots? Like the hunting industry is so heavy in planting just food plots, which are awesome. They're, they're fun to shoot deer off of. You know, if you, if you hunt them right, um, and especially take a kid out or someone new, they can go see them from, you know, a ladder stand or, you know, a box blind, something like that. But there's so much other things that could be done in order to tremendously help out that deer herd and also help out everything else. You know, we talked quite a bit on the episode about turkeys um, and even dabbled in a little bit of quail because there used to be a lot of quail on this property as well. So it's kind of coming full circle. And and to me, this is what gets me super excited because this is something that, you know, if you are a landowner that you can actually take part in um, and have success with. And and the, the amazing thing is, Having Alan and Kyle coming down, which are two very experienced guys when it comes to like this kind of, you know, this kind of work is just the overall diversity of this property and and how many different species are there that are truly what's building, you know, higher quality deer on the property when it comes to body weight, when it comes to mass, when it comes to antler production, all that. And then also your doe production, you know, heavier, heavier does and healthier does are going to produce healthier fawns. If you have healthier fawns, more if they can live, they're going to have a better opportunity to be able to put, potentially put on, you know, their full potential when it comes to antler growth if they're bucks. Um, and there was a study. I brought this. I don't know if we brought up in the podcast. I know I brought it up in the conversation. There was a study. I want to say Mississippi State University put on, and I'd love to maybe talk to Dr. Strickland or someone about this, where they took deer from, I think it was North Mississippi, uh, in an area of the state that is just more known for uh, – you know, maybe not the the greatest antler potential and smaller body size of deer. Um, you know, just the average deer you'd find in the southeast. You know, mature bucks getting 115, 120 inches. And then they took deer from down the delta, the same thing down the delta that are, is much more known for, you know, bigger antlers, bigger body size, just bigger overall deer in general. And they put them in a pen, mm-hmm. but they kept them separate. But they put them in pens. And th- what they were they were testing for is with similar food, similar situations, low stress environments how many generations, or even if it was possible of how many generations would those deer start to look the same as in the overall, you know, body size, the antler potential and everything. And if I remember correctly, it was three generations. Yeah. Uh, It took three generations where a doe, you know, that doe had a fawn, that fawn had a fawn. And that third fawn was the one that really produced uh, where those bucks, the, the buck fawns, looked nearly similar as in body size and not even the buck fawns the full grown bucks yeah like they're they're throwing antlers of the same you know caliber uh, yeah that's yeah when they when they were able to put age on them so um it it took them three generations roughly for them to kind of balance out or get pretty balanced uh which is super fascinating and that's why i was telling anthony and we kind of i can't remember if we talked about that on the podcast but i'm like if you're looking four to six years down the road if you can continue this this 
this quality of food and habitat. Like, yeah, there's going to be deer that come and go, but there's going to be some does that decide to stay and some bucks, you know, that kind of like, you know, wander the property and, you know, they have a lot larger home range. But I'm like, you seriously could see a huge difference. And that's what Alan talked about. Alan talked about on his farm up in Tennessee, in southern Tennessee, that when he got there, it was a beautiful oak stand, like, you know, mix of white oaks and red oaks. And they came through on parts of the property and did an extremely heavy select cut, like a savanna cut, where you have trees every 50 to 100 feet, if not even further, uh, and allowed a lot more sunlight to come down. And that was able, in just a short period of time, they went from bucks that were weighing like 160, 170 pounds and does weighing, he was talking about the episode, like 85 pounds. Uh, for a mature doe in early season to now they're killing the average doe is 120 plus pounds and the bucks have put on more weight as well. And then antlers, antler production has gone up in everything. Um, and that just got me so excited again, from even a small landowner of what could be done on a property and yeah. also just absolutely hammer that deer, that, that, uh, doe herd as well. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Everyone likes uh, hammering some does too. Yeah, it gives you a gives you an opportunity to get the kids out there, get some uh, friends or whatever out there, and and put a hurting on the doe herd. So, get those deer numbers down. Uh, that's actually something that we talked to the guys at Land and Legacy about is overpopulation of does too. That mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize uh, what kind of problem they have with a uh, having too many does, which is I, I don't know. I guess that's a subject for another time. But I've always found that pretty interesting. The fact that most people aren't shooting enough does and. Uh, some of the places that have really low deer densities across the state or, or really across the country end up having really good deer quality because those deer just aren't stressed for food sources or anything like that. So that that's a really fascinating subject, too, that we could go down a big yeah. rabbit hole on with, with Adam Keith or Matt Dye from uh, Land and Legacy. Yeah. Now, Alan brought that up uh, on the first podcast we did with him, which was you know a few weeks ago, yep. where in his property, in his part of the state of Alabama, kind of north central Alabama, that you know, there wasn't really any deer there, very little deer up until like the early 2000s. That's when they started coming in. And he said that was like the best time to kill mm-hmm. absolutely just huge deer because like those deer, there hadn't been deer in the area for so long because they'd been killed out and they were kind of trickling back in from like some higher elevation locations. Uh, and as they trickled through, they were finding locations with unbelievable browse, you know, stuff that hadn't really been touched. You know, cattle hit some of it, but, you know, cattle weren't touching a lot of it. So they had an expansion of uh, of food and high quality food sources, and those first deer that got there were able to get massive. And uh, he's like, that's when you know a lot of those guys in that area were killing huge deer. And he's like, since then it's kind of trickled down because the deer population went up, so quality of food's gone down. And then he's like, that's the reason why you got to like hammer those deer. Yeah, uh, and it's kind of funny because growing up, I don't know how it was for you guys, but like growing up with Anthony and Michael, uh, Anthony's brother, we go hunt like some of our hunting clubs, and like, man, they had one club down in, I want to say it was Greene County. And yeah. it was nothing to see 50 deer on a food plot, yeah. like a half acre food plot. And like at one time, like not them trickling, they're, they're like, like rabbits. Yeah, they're like everywhere. They're about as big as a big old swamp rabbit. Yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, they're like, you know, those 70, 75 pounds. Like, yeah. you know, they're tiny. Yeah. And, you know, bucks 120 to 130 pounds. Uh, but it, it was like, oh, it's fun. Like, oh, man, you're going to see a bunch of deer. But come to find out like years later, and like I've met so many people like, oh, yeah, I want to have a bunch of deer in my property. But now it's kind of coming full circle. And this happened, happened in the last year of like, how that's a detriment to like just overall like what those deer could be you know potentially you know everybody talks about genetics but like a lot of deer if they had enough food they could do a lot better than what they're doing right now when it comes to you know body wise and also yeah. uh, antler production yeah exactly uh one thing that was I, I found pretty interesting about anthony's property and also it's a big part of how anthony likes to hunt was the whole isolated white oak thing and especially with his property how it sets up now a couple of the properties next to him got clear cut 
uh, and as as I understood it, they had a whole bunch of big white oaks on them. Monster, giant, monster oaks. Huge, yeah. He called it virgin timber. Yeah. Uh, like huge oak trees that were producing a lot of acorns, and now they're all gone. And Anthony has a couple big giant oaks on his place as well that are left over from when it was a cattle farm. What? Yeah. 70 years ago yeah i mean 50 plus yeah yeah i mean just giant big oak trees and uh i i wanted to talk to anthony about that but we were we were a little too deep at that point <laughs> yeah but you no know, it's interesting because again you know in his his property has, actually has quite a few oaks uh and we learned there's quite a few post oaks um you've got uh, a couple different white oak species and some red oaks as well in the property and most of those trees are massive like they're not yeah they're not the size, like you're not getting a climber on any one of those trees on his property. You know, they are big enough. They're actually so big that Anthony doesn't even want to put a lock on them. Cause I mean, you're talking about using like an eight foot ratchet strap in order to try to get it around the tree. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're huge trees. Um, but like that's where he's like learned that skill set of hunting isolated white oaks. And that's what, when we did an episode with him a year and a half ago, probably now, mm -hmm. uh, we hit on that topic of like hunting isolated white oaks and the success he's had in Alabama doing so. And he learned that on that property. But now with like, one of his neighbors that owns property on both sides of him clear cut their whole properties. And one of those properties, specifically the one that's just adjacent to his property on the Western boundary was just massive Oak stand. I mean, just some of the prettiest timber you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and now with it being cut, he's got some of the last kind of larger Oaks in the area, unless you go a lot further in a couple different directions to find them. And, uh, you know, that's got him even more excited. Um, and, you know, Alan and Kyle talked about this on our walk, which people will see in the video of, you know, if you manage for kind of that Savannah habitat, how that oak production can actually go up uh, because they're not competing against any other trees for resources or anything like that. And definitely Anthony's seen that. There, I mean, there's a couple, like the white oaks are kind of spotty depending on, you know, frost and everything, how they're producing. But he's got a couple of red oaks on that property that are like nearly guaranteed to be dropping. Yeah, And like buddy. that's where he's killing a lot of his deers, like around those, like even Hightower where he shot that buck, there's a huge red oak just down below him that always drops. And that's kind of like one of the stands that works really good all the way up through November, uh, which again, this rut on this property's late December, early January timeframe. Yep. And, um, you know, he's had tons of success and that's where he shot that buck. Like he was, you know, kind of came around there, probably was feeding down below where he couldn't see him kind of around that oak and came up yep. and uh, was able to get a shot opportunity at that buck. That's awesome, man. Uh, so is that is that everything you got with them? I mean, we're, we got a lot more coming out with uh, Alan and Kyle on video, which y'all can be looking for later this summer. Uh, but we got, we got a scouting trip we got to talk about. <laughs> mm. Got some scouting shenanigans we got to talk about. Yeah, yeah. No, other than that, it was fun. I mean, I'll just recommend like if if you are a landowner that listens to this property, whether it's like twenty acres or you get hundreds of acres, if not you know a thousand plus acres, it's worth having a guy like Alan and Kyle come out and just look at the property. Uh, I mean, they do consults. I mean, that's what we were doing. They did a consult for us, and it's fascinating just how much we learn. And Anthony, I'll say this, Anthony, when y'all left after we got done with the podcast, and I hung out with him for a couple more hours. Dude, he was like giddy smiling of like, dude, he's like, I learned so much. He's like, dude, I need a spreadsheet of all the different species we found and what they look like because he's like, dude, he's like, I don't want to run a brush, a brush hog out there anymore. He's like, I'm scared to cut nothing yep. other than, you know, running fire, you know, just cutting some of the species. But um, that's great. Yeah, it was just fascinating. And again, you know, he's a guy and he still is like this, but he's like, you know, he's talking about like the, the one food plot it's on this bench on this bridge top that has some of the most diverse habitat out there yep you know alan and kyle talked about kyle talked about he's like dude if somebody wanted to have the species that you have right here they're gonna be paying upwards of three thousand dollars per acre yep. to plant what you have here planted and he's like 
and you just put a food pot over the top of some of it. <laughs> and, he, and, and afterwards, you know, after the fact, Anthony told me, he's like, dude, I'm just not going to go through and spray. I'm just going to let it t- kind of do its thing and see how it produces. And he's like, we just won't put a food pot there next year. I'm like, all right, cool, man. I get it. But uh, it, it, it's fascinating. Again, it's, it's worth getting, like, you know, those guys out there on your property and uh, and seeing what they can find. But it was awesome yeah. experience. But flip side, we did have a scouting trip, uh, some shenanigans that uh, you know still kind of working out. But it, it it was a it was a good time. We found a lot of interesting stuff that was not really expecting to find where we found it. Yeah. So last year uh, we did a lot of mountain hunts. I would say, or, or we did one main mountain hunt. But we talked about mountain hunting a lot last year. It was it's kind of like a focal point. I guess that me and you both got really interested in it, mm-hmm. and we focused on it pretty hard. Well, this year we've got several river bottom hunts coming up that we're going to be doing at least three right yeah like three big river bottom hunts that we're gonna be doing filming them everything and uh you know like in preparation for those hunts we're going to be doing scouting we're going to be interviewing people and everything so you flatlanders your, your time is coming i promise <laughs> uh and part of part of one of those hunts is uh that that we we're going to take care of last weekend was we were going to go scout and man, we we're gonna take the old boat out. We had we've had that boat for a couple months now. We're gonna go take it on its maiden scouting voyage. Yeah. We've taken it fishing a couple times, but uh, we're gonna go take it scouting. That's what we got it for. So man, we wake up at what four thirty, four four. We wake up at four, leave at four thirty. Yeah, I pick you up. We drive an undisclosed amount of time to an undisclosed location. <laughs> oh, so now you want to be secretive? Okay, <laughs> all right. So uh, we go to this this river. That uh, we're gonna throw the boat in at, and we, dude, I'm so excited. I got my fishing rods too. I was like, we're gonna catch a crappie. We're gonna go throw cameras out. You know, it's uh-huh. gonna be fun. And uh, yeah, that boat was in the water at a grand total of uh, what, like seven minutes, possibly. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, got some issues. What what kind of issues are we having? Uh, so Andrew's very new to boats. So I grew. Up I am with, very new to boats. So I grew up with boats, and there's certain things that like you just naturally check off the list, like when you start a boat up. You know, you know, first, if you have like four, four strokes, a little bit different from a two stroke, but number one, when you crank a motor up, you're going to do a couple of things. First off, you're going to, you're going to be listening and you kind of just subconsciously doing it. It's not necessarily a checklist, but like, is it sounding weird, weirder than normal? I mean, like a four stroke, our four stroke is extremely quiet. Purrs okay? like a kitten. I mean, it's like, you barely hear it when it's on. And, uh, also what I'm saying is like, you know, if it, if it's knocking or sounds like anything sounds off, you just cut it off. Um, and then also you are going to be looking for when you look back after you start the engine, um, making sure that, you know, water's coming out of the engine, uh, you know, with the, uh, we call it the old pisser, um, yep. you know, I don't even know what the technical term is. I don't that's, know. that's just, you know, what that we is the technical it's, it's, term. Yeah. The pisser. So um, we call it in Alabama. So, uh, and just make sure water's coming out. Well, Andrew got Andrew got in the boat. I, I was able to back him up because we're still working on Andrew's trailer skills. Hey, easy now. Up. I, I I can back up a trailer with the best of them now. It's it's taking them some time. We finally I've, coaching them. I figured it out. We're gonna do a how to. Okay, well, I didn't grow up with boats. All right, I don't yeah. know how to do this stuff. But uh, <laughs> but anyways, he pulls off the trailer. When he pulls off the trailer, another thing: a four stroke, a, a, a four stroke should not be smoking at all. Okay, so. The two-stroke, of course, you're burning oil, so that sucker's going to be smoking. But a four-stroke shouldn't be smoking at all. He pulls off in turns, and I'm pulling the trailer back. And when he does, I'm seeing not a lot of smoke, but I'm seeing some smoke coming out of the back of the engine, like where the pistol's at. And I'm like, that's weird. And I put the truck in park, and I look back, and I'm like, I don't see any water coming out of the engine. And, you know, he's, you know, 30, 40 yards from me at this point, and kind of pull out, and you're doing a little circle. And I try to yell at you quietly a soft yell as we would say okay and be like hey is there water coming out of the engine and you're like what and i'm like 
<laughs> if you can't hear me, like the engine's got to be pretty loud. Yeah. I could hear the engine from where we're at, which typically you yeah, can't I could do. not hear you at all. And uh, finally, what well, you, you cut, I it, cut it off? Yeah, you cut it off, and I was like, "Hey, is there water coming out of the engine?" And you're like, "I don't, I don't know. know. Let me start it up." <laughs> and you start it up, and this is smoke coming out. There's no water coming out of the engine. I'm like, "All right, kill it right now." Uh, that's not good um, because that's how it cools the engine down. If you don't cut it, uh, cut it, and uh, if we didn't notice it, and where's the rod? We would have had that sucker locked up, and that would now be a, a paperweight. Yep. A big paperweight. So big expensive paperweight. So long story short, uh impeller we think went out. I don't know. You took the you took it off and I'm looking at it. the impeller looks fine. So Yeah. Did you look at it out there a minute yeah. ago? Yeah, I looked at it. But yeah, uh, it doesn't look it doesn't look bad. We need a we're gonna have to figure that out. But yeah, so impeller went out, something went out and it's not pumping water. So uh it quickly changed our plans because kinda yeah. where we were going, there's no walk in access. Mm-hmm. Um so we had to pull an obble and go find some property that we could actually potentially walk into. Yeah, that was uh that was that was pretty disappointing, I'm not gonna lie. It, it was crushing actually, one might say. I was I was pretty upset, dude. I was looking forward to that. There's some parcels down there that you can only get to by boat that I'm real excited about going and looking at. Yeah. Um, just how it sets up. Some recent guests that we've talked to, Jeremy Aaron, you know, some of the stuff that he talks about uh, looking for and keying in on like uh, this place checked a lot of boxes couldn't get to it so uh, we went and checked out a different place that we could get to by foot and it's a place that we had pinned anyways that, that I've been interested in since really last year and I just didn't have a chance to go hunt it last season late in the year and um, we walked into that and we so it, it took it took a, a fun boat ride slash fishing slash scouting trip to a six and a half mile walk through a swamp <laughs> so that was that was fun uh, but it was pretty productive. I mean, mm-hmm. that w- once we actually hit the swamp and got out there and started looking around, uh, we ended up finding quite a bit of deer sign, and we ended up finding quite a bit of scrapes specifically, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, keying in on particularly sloughs, beaver dams, and pinch points, stuff like that. Uh, the area that I had been looking at is a place that gets a, a pretty good amount of hunting pressure. There's quite a few people that hunt this uh, when the rut's going on, and they're all limited to walk in from a certain way. They all have to walk in from this one main road, and there's quite a bit of land, as we found out, that you can walk to back there. Uh, So you might have four or five different guys parking pretty close to each other, but they're walking down into a pretty large area. And so my thought is, if you could come in by boat and get on the back side of all that, when those guys, they're just doing a deer drive for you, Mm -hmm. essentially. And so that's what I wanted to look at. And you can get to it by boat, but boat didn't work. So we walked into it the same way that those other people might walk into it and basically just kind of hit the edge of the sloughs and started running them down. And we were checking out the heads of sloughs, beaver dams, stuff like that. Um, What what were your kind of first impressions of it? You you were a little underwhelmed at first. Yeah, I I was like, yeah, that's that's cool. (laughs) Um, It's funny because for whatever reason, and again, you know, I don't, I don't have a bunch of years of experience hunting river bottoms, but the sign in river bottoms to me is very different than what I would find in hill country. Yes. Um, yeah. And what I mean that is, or what I mean by that is even like when I was in Arkansas, it's the same situation. A couple places I've hunted in Alabama. It's like the sun. When I say sun, I'm not talking about tracks. Like you can find tracks everywhere. Like yeah. I'm not talking about tracks. I'm talking about scrapes and rubs to me are very different on where you find them and what you're finding. Like in hill country, if you were at the top of a big thermal hub and you had a couple points drop down, you're at the highest spot, you're probably going to find some rugs, you're probably going to find some scrapes there. You're going to probably find them in and around that thermal hub, down in the thermal hub. 
Flatland, it's not like that because there's no thermal hubs per se, as in like what we would imagine. We have a bunch of elevation change. So it's almost like when you found areas that close to the water uh, where some of that thermals would pull down to those sloughs or pull down to, you know, just the water in general, you would find thicker cover right there right on the edge of the water and you'd find that sign right there on the edge of the water. But the, the second you got off that edge of where that water mm. was, it would like disperse and like you're not finding scrapes, you're not finding rubs or anything. But the yep. second you got down to the water, you're like, okay, they're clearly yeah. traveling right here. And it might be for a few reasons. Number one, you probably have a, a lot stronger, you're going to have a lot stronger thermal right there, everything pulling down to that water. Mm-hmm. But also I think with the wind, the wind probably eddying, probably like kind of going down the, the edge of that water or down the edge of the tree line yeah. could cause it to be a, kind of like a, a wind tunnel where those deer could probably smell, you know, a, a lot easier down there than if they were kind of off the water's edge. Um, that's just a thought. Uh, um, I'd be interested in kind of seeing how it plays out. But the sun definitely said it. So the interesting thing is like you're walking through stuff that all looks the same. And all of a sudden, you just hit this edge, and it still kind of looks the same. Yeah. But then you're like, oh, well, here they're at. And that's kind of what it was. Yep. I mean, we got to we walked to that first spot, and uh, you're like, I want to go check out this beer dam. I'm like, all right, cool. And it went across the slough. We get there. And first, I find a little persimetry growing that we posted a photo on, which is kind of cool. Yep. And not, I don't know, 15 yards from that little beaver dam was the first big scrape we found. Yeah, so... And also with this area, it's it's in a part of Alabama that is it's South Alabama. We'll just say that, um, and it's in an area where your deer, your your body weights are going to be smaller. Yeah. And I think I think we ran into a little bit of what we ran into on the SOA hunt last year because the SOA hunt we did last year was like Lower Alabama. Yeah. Smaller body weights. My my buck was four and a half, and he weighed. 136 pounds live weight live weight guts in everything that's crazy and then yours was five and a half he weighed what 145 or yeah something? 146 live weight which is crazy yeah, exactly so i mean just <laughs> like not uh, big deer so when you walk up and you find a bunch of tracks the reason i bring this up yeah, is oh yeah we found that beaver dam yeah. and there was all these tracks coming off that beaver dam i'm like not, oh heck yeah and jacob was not impressed not in, he's the, like look at all these fawns yeah, crossing this beaver dude, dam not excited at all i was like dude i don't know these deer down here probably weigh like 120 pounds so yeah. like you got to take that into consideration yeah, it's but that, once you re-key your mind to that though yeah. you're kind of like okay actually this might be a pretty good track you know it's not like yeah. a four-fingered giant iowa track or anything but for here this might be a pretty good track you know yeah when you go from like one like you can go from like north part of Alabama or like you know, a yeah. lot of these states and you go south unless you're in an area with a ton of ag like maybe it's different and like just you maybe you have some bigger body weights but like it's not the case yeah where we were at and it's like that is and the SOA hunt was very much like that because I was very underwhelmed the whole trip I'm like dude I haven't seen a single buck track you know dude I think it's a buck track I'm like dude they're little tiny little things I'm like dude I don't it's got to be over like three fingers width for me to like get kind of excited about it and uh like we, I don't think we found a single trip, uh, a, a single track on the SOA hunt like that. But we saw a ton of bucks, and like come yeah. to find out, you grab their hoof, and you're like, dude, they got tiny little feet. Well, we killed those deer, and we remember we were looking at their hooves, and I was like, if I killed this at home, I would. This would be like a doe, like Maybe. like an average doe yeah. at home. Like it's crazy how much smaller they were. And yeah. but again, like where we're at. So yeah, I, long story short, when we got to that beaver cross, and there was a ton of tracks, I'm like, dude, nothing gets me excited about this. Like I'm like, he's <laughs> some, he's some, you know, eighty. Pound. Like if I wanted to shoot a seventy three pound fawn yeah, <laughs> or like, doe, yeah, I'm like little dink deer. But yeah, you know, man. then you got pocket deer. Yeah, then you got to realize where you're at. I'm like, okay, well, you know, he. he 
you know, he might be mature, but he might have some tiny little feet. So I had to, you know, I had to, oh, I had yeah. to, I had to like bring myself back to it. But at first, I was like, this, this is not cool. So I don't like this. The one of the uh, that was the first spot that I actually had pinned that I wanted to go look at. Which on X Tip, this is what I do now because my pins are absolutely overwhelming. I have literally thousands of them because I've been using on X for so long. Is when I'm going to a new place, I'll drop a pin and I'll make it like green or something. Like this year, I'm doing all green pins for stuff that I want to go look at. Ooh. And then when I go get to that spot, I will delete that pin and drop a new pin. Or you can just change like the color or whatever if you, if it's in the spot you want it, and uh, and and fill it out with like notes and everything of like what is actually in that spot. So that way I I'm, I'm not having pins on top of pins. So that was the first spot that I actually pinned was that Beaver Dam, and I could see it on the imagery. And the way the spot's set up is it's a slough coming off the main river channel. It runs like way up into the land. And up at the head of it, it, it doesn't just end. It gets real swampy, and it just kind of peters out over, a, I don't know, probably 350 yards or so, where it just gets, like, kind of grassy and, and watery and just kind of, you know, marshy looking. Um, and the deer can cross it really anywhere. Like, they can cross anywhere in that marsh, but I just keyed, on, keyed in on that beaver dam because it's just like a, I don't know, like a linear feature that goes through there that they can follow. So we hit the beaver dam, find all the tracks. I'm like, okay, this is great. I bet we're going to find a scrape just a little bit further down. So now we're walking down the slough towards the main river. So you got to think when the thermals are falling, they're going to be probably pulling out towards that main river. So thermals are going to be falling down from that beaver dam. So we're walking downwind of it. And it's, it's probably about 25 to 50-ish yards. I don't know. I'd have to look at the map again. But there's that scrape right where it's supposed to be. And I'm talking about I got fired up, dude. I got because it was a big scrape. Oh yeah, dude. It, 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 it was, was a big scrape. It was. I don't, I don't, what was the tree it was on? Was it a beach? It was a beach tree, and this was. It, it had I think four pretty distinct looking branches. They were torn up. Very big area, bigger than the table we're sitting in front of right now. Mm-hmm. Much bigger than this table actually. One of the sections of the scrape was about the size of this table, and uh, we got pretty excited about it. Wanted to throw a camera on it. Um, but Jacob's like, I don't know if I throw a camera on this. So we keep moving, and it, it was here's the here's the interesting thing about the scrapes in this area to me was in the same way that you have to kind of like retool your mind with the tracks. I feel like you have to do that with the scrapes too, because as impressive as that scrape was, we go 50 more yards and we find another one, and we go 20 yards and find another one. Yep. 30 yards, find another big one. Big looking branches. Big looking branches. Big scrapes, and each and every one of these scrapes that we're finding, minus one or two are scrapes that if I found those on our mountain hunt area, I would be like doing a backflip. Yeah, because I agree. They're that they're that impressive. Yep. Now, up on the mountain area, it's a lower deer density. There's mm-hmm. just not as many deer. Down here there's a much higher deer density. And, you know, like that goes that's probably why they're all so small, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Um and so I'm I'm just wondering if that's just a factor of how many deer there are. They're just they're just making more scrapes. Yeah. You know? Because I've I've actually heard someone float the idea that it might have been Greg Skufka, that the amount of licking branches that you have is like loosely based on the amount of bucks that are visiting that scrape because they don't necessarily like to hit the same licking branch as all the other bucks. So that's why, especially with a beech tree, that's why you find impressive scrapes on beech trees because there's like five perfect licking branches and, and buck number one comes and works this one and buck number two comes up and he smells that and he works the next one. Buck number three, you know, comes and works the next one because they're all trying to make their own little mark, you know. And then, of course, they'll work all of them. You know, they'll work a scrape that's already there. But I've heard that as an explanation of why they do that. And that would just kind of make sense 
in my head in that area of why there's so many big scrapes in such a like concentrated area. And they're all linear. They're running right down the edge of that slough. Mm -hmm. And another little thing about the spot that I found interesting was the surrounding hardwoods were very open. You could see uh, probably about 100 yards through them, and it's June. So we're full green up. So in in wintertime, you can see way through there for sure when all the leaves and everything drop. And these deer were working just the very edge of the water. You kind of mentioned it earlier where there's enough sunlight penetrating off the edge of the lake, basically, that you have 10 to 12 yards of slightly thicker cover right along the water's edge, and that's where all that deer sign was concentrated. The minute you break away and get off of that that slightly thicker cover, there's, there's like, nothing out there besides, like, hog sign. So I found that super interesting. Um, I, I, I really liked the setup, and it was... It was fun to film it too. We filmed a lot of B-roll there because it's going to be fun to show just how much of a subtle terrain difference that was, but mm-hmm. the deer were still just like glued to that edge. Yeah. And this is a place that I have a lot of history with over many years. And I used to struggle really hard at this place because I'm hunting those big open hardwoods and I, I'll find like one off deer sign, but I'm not finding anything great and I'm never seeing much mm-hmm. over the years. And then we find something like this. I'm like, okay, I wonder if this is it. I wonder if this is what I've been missing the whole time. And then you zoom out, and all of this, the slough edge, the habitat edges, all the scrapes and everything, fall kind of in the middle of a bunch of different uh, pine thickets that are just kind of scattered all over the place. Mm -hmm. And the deer are just kind of working around through there. And I, I think that beaver dam is a little bit of a focal point for them to kind of, you know, meet at where it seems like that's kind of the spokes of the hub, you know, where they're mm-hmm. crossing that that slough and going from this pine thicket to that one to that one, and they're bouncing back and forth from all of them. So Yeah. Also, another interesting factor we found when we got down there a good ways is uh, there must have been some kind of major thunderstorm system that came through. I don't think it was tornado, but thunderstorm system that came through with some straight-line winds sometime over the summer or early or late spring. It blew down a ton of trees just off the some of it was on the water's edge but a lot of it was just off the water's edge and it, the crazy thing is it wasn't like a tornado like a tornado comes through anything in the path of tornado is going down this was like you'd have a few trees here there a few trees here down and then you go 30 yards over and there'd be another line of trees down yep. and like they were all blown down they weren't they weren't cut down you can see they got blown down and they were all still green surprisingly enough uh, yep. so again it happened very recently to when we got there but the crazy thing is Again, it wasn't just a huge mess. Like you could kind of like walk in between some of these down trees where you'd have it's like a maze. Yeah, like you'd have like a twenty yard wide gap that would go through like where you have trees down on your left, trees on your right, and then it would tee off, and then it would split. And that like path you're walking is twenty yards wide. It would split, and then you'd have you know a row of trees down in front of you, and then you could go left or right you know, down the split that again was 30, 40 yards wide, and it was like that throughout the whole thing, which got me crazy excited because. Previously, I'm sure there was not much of any cover down there. Like it seems like in the river yeah. bottoms, the only time you find like a lot of cover in that in, in that more hardwood stain is if you have a bunch of blown down trees and you know sunlight hits the ground, gets thicker, and then you have the blown down trees too. Well, this to me sets up amazing for the rut because you had like this like in like a maze of trees and all these big paths you could go through. And once, again, they're not like five yard wide paths; they're like 10, 15, 20 yards wide. Some are a little bit wider than that. Yeah, kind of going between all these blown down trees, and the deer are already using it. But we didn't find any 
we didn't find any scrapes there. We didn't find any rubs there because we're like, okay, you know, that's kind of like you know disheartening because you're finding tracks, but it's very hit or miss on the sign like that they're leaving from the past rut. But I'm like, I bet you now this year because that wasn't there last year. This year, yeah. it's going to be crazy there because first off, if a doe's trying to get away from a buck, she's going in that stuff. Yeah, like, she's going to be diving through you know down trees, getting away from the buck. But also, it's set up so good to find, and we, we had a spot like that marked where you'd have like one of these splits again, like the example I gave you, where you could put a mock scrape right in the middle of where you have like four three or four of these different intersections kind of coming together with all these down trees and put a mock scrape right there and i bet you would do so good and there's still a bunch of wide oak standing in there early season might be awesome if they're dropping uh but for the rut i feel like that would be incredible yeah like incredible like in that maze of all those down trees and like have bucks cruising through that stuff yeah yeah definitely it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and yeah that was that was one thing also that i found interesting was the lack of rubs I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, absolutely. We found so many scrapes, and uh, we found like five rubs or something on the whole walk, six and a half miles. Yep. I mean, we found very few rubs, and I don't, I have no explanation for that, like at all. No. That, But you kind of ran into that in Arkansas last year. Oh, yeah. Where you hunted at early season, and you weren't finding any rubs. You weren't finding whip rubs from this year, but you also weren't finding rubs from last year. No, that was mid-October, and yeah, I didn't find any rub. I mean, I found one rub, and I'm like, dude, it, and it was very i mean it was something that wasn't impressive it was like a whip rub but it didn't look like it was a fresh whip rub it was probably like just coming out of velvet like two months previously but like other than that didn't find any rubs until the rut like now when the rut happened i don't know if they rub those same trees every single year because i had walked through some of those areas and did not see any old rubs in those areas so i'm like i don't know if the deer just moved in or those those trees healed up so good that you couldn't even tell there was a rub there. I doubt that. Yeah. But um, maybe I just missed them. But like I did, I did not find any rubs. When I was there in mid October, and then you know in November it was just insane. Like yep. it was just giant rubs everywhere. Yep. Um, I wonder if it's gonna be like that uh, when we go hunt this place. Yeah, I, I wonder. That would be that would be exciting. We're gonna find out. You go into there to your little tree maze that uh-huh. we found. Find a big old rub line right through there i mean yeah i mean that that's the spot i still i would love to go back to and again throw a camera out and put a mock scrape there i think you would do mm-hmm. extremely well just because again it's like you're, you're, it's a bottleneck where you're, you're bottling deer down from a couple different directions coming to this like one spot and i'm sure there's other spots like that where it's like you know you have four or five intersections all coming together with all these down trees but it just it looks like a spot like you could have deer bedding there kind of in and around those brush piles you know there's gonna be oaks there so they could bed close like in next to some thick cover in some thick cover right adjacent to trees that are going to be dropping, which is something you don't find down there. I, I think early season, you probably find a lot of deer bedding out in the open, uh, even some of the bucks where they can kind of see, but they can feed right there. Yep. Um, but again, during the rut, I just think it's it's going to be incredible. So, yeah. um, and it's one of the spots like, dude, I mean, you can hunt with a rifle, but I mean, if you shoot one, it's going to be... Get close. Like, it's going to be 40 yards probably. Might as well bow hunt it. I mean, maybe. I say that. (laughs) Now you're going to be taking that muzzleloader. Yeah, taking the muzzleloader. Yeah, buddy. Sets up good for that. Yep. Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls. But they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call. And you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP24 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981. 
and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at... Uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the true lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50 yard pattern on my gun with the true lock choke is unbelievable. Like everybody's jaws were dropping. Like when I, we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option. Same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring, you can head over to truelockchokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K-chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun, and shoot with a more deadly pattern with True Lock. Yeah, it was a fun time, man. Was, I'm excited to get more into the flatland stuff, go look at those areas, kind of get back into some of that because I haven't done it in a couple years now. Um, I used to go to that place every single year and loved it, and I just haven't made I haven't made as much effort down there as I have in the past. So I'm excited to get back into it and, and really try to figure that out. It's going to be a, a new challenge, kind of like the mountain thing was with us last year. I mean, we've always been kind of hill country guys and uh the the bigger mountain was a step out for us it was something new so i'm excited to do that again this year with the swamp stuff and uh and that stuff that place was just the the very beginning you know so with that scouting trip in the books what do you think uh what what are your kind of thoughts overall on how that went you know how, how we're preparing for this fall and the flatland stuff um number one is Realizing, first off, the deer bodies are going to be smaller um, and tracks probably be, again, similar, again, smaller. So don't let that be a discouraging factor for us because, uh, again, it was for me until, like, you kind of made the comment, like, same thing on our SOA hunt. I'm like, okay, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, also, I do think, like, the boat axis will be super helpful. Um, I just, I am interested in seeing how many other guys are doing that as well. Um because I know, like, that part of kind of like you know, southern part of the state, uh, you probably have a lot more duck hunters, you have a lot more people that probably have boats. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting kind of seeing how that plays out. But, uh, I'm excited, I'm, I'm interested in again trying to learn more about the the river bottom hunting style, kind of like from guys like Jeremy Aaron, uh, who re- recently had on the podcast, and seeing you know how we can kind of learn that and also just make us even more well-rounded whitetail hunters yeah you know you know hunting the mountains a little bit which we're gonna try to do some more of that as well but you know hunting higher elevation hill country and flatlands and kind of just from like a talking point and interviewing skill set we have you know something we can really kind of work with when it comes to to guess uh based off personal experiences of what we've dealt with and how they'd work through different situations so yeah well what'd you think of like the actual trip though like, what did you think of the sign we found on the ground? Like, did, were we finding the sign in places where you expected us to find sign, or were you a little bit surprised by how everything laid out? Um, a little, a little surprised, just kind of where it was all at. I mean, it was all around the edge of the water, um, but I, it was good. I'm just, I'm really perplexed why we did not find more rubs. 
because mm-hmm. uh, the robes we found, like they were fine. Like there was one that looked 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 pretty good, but it was just real low to the ground. Like again, yeah. <laughs> like good robes, but if they're low to the ground. I'm like, what the heck is this deer doing, dude? Yeah, he's scratching his feet. I mean, there, we found one that was a pretty good sized rub, but like it wasn't higher than maybe ten or twelve inches off the ground. Was the top of the rub? Like he was rubbing like okay, maybe it was, maybe like fifteen. It was just really close to the ground. Little pygmy deer. And I'm like, what is going on, dude? Like I, it's just it's just strange. Um, I mean, the sign was good. I, I was a little underwhelmed, again, just going back to the whole track thing. Like, we found tracks in very specific spots, and then there are certain areas that looked really good based off, like, what it looked like on aerial imagery, even on the ground, and, like, there was no tracks to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in kind of seeing how they shift. But, I mean, it, it was a good trip, um, especially, you know, trying to make stuff work since the boat wasn't working. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it worked out well, I think. Yeah, I'm excited to get back out there. Um, we we did put a camera on that Beaver Dam crossing, so I'm I'm eager to see what we actually get right there. Because I, I mean, it could there was no fawn tracks there, which I don't think they'd be dropping no. by that point, anyways. But still, it, I mean, it, that that those sets of tracks that we saw very well could be a bachelor group of bucks. So and we found we'll we found one set of tracks, even though it was again is kind of in some wet ground, so you know they splay out a little bit more. But we found one track that i was like okay that looks more like what i'm used to i don't know man i don't trust jacob's track track judging skills because when he started showing me what he was calling a four-finger track it is like very obviously a running track from a deer i'm like dude that could be like a doe running like you can't tell when i show you a four-finger track oh dude you like uh i almost said the name of the place but i'm not gonna say it but you've showed me pictures yeah oh yeah you've showed me tracks You've showed me pictures of tracks and in person, mm-hmm. but but you need to work on knowing when you're looking at like a running, trotting track versus mm-hmm. a walking track. Because I think that a lot of times you're mistaking mm-hmm. a running track for a walking track. Because I mean, when they're just, I mean, splayed real hard like that, mm-hmm. most of the time that's a running track. You know, it might be different uh, for Midwestern guys or, or just people who maybe live in areas with softer soil and much heavier deer. But down here... Like that just does not happen very often at no, all, no. especially on our like clay soil type mm-hmm. type stuff. Like you're just not gonna have a big splayed out track like that most of the time. Interesting. So, yeah. anyways, I need, I need to get with a biologist and see what the stride, like the stride differences between a walking track and a running track. Well, well, the 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 best way to do mm-hmm. it is when you're driving around on the WMA mm-hmm. and you see three does, you know, walking down the side of the road, mm-hmm. and then they see your truck and then they start running. Mm-hmm hop out and go look in the ditch at their at their tracks and that's how i did it because i learned that from trapping like have, driving out to the same place every single day you know for two or three weeks while your traps are out and you're doing it with coyote track stuff too but when you're out there that much you see you see deer all the time mm-hmm. i did the same thing with turkeys too because i was i was always curious about um the turkey track thing like oh if this toes longer than it's a gobbler track well man i, I do subscribe to that still somewhat but I had one time I had uh, I walked up on a big group of hens and they were just walking around in this real dusty looking area and I was like oh this is gonna be perfect and I scared them all off walked up there and took a picture of their tracks and I put it on one of those turkey Facebook groups I was like hen or gobbler man there's all these guys on there like oh that's a big old gobbler that's a gobbler track gobbler track and I'm like nope I saw the turkey that stood in this track it was a, definitely a hen but that that's the best way to do it is when you actually see a deer and you know for a fact that deer just made that track go over there and check it out you know mm-hmm. take a look at it but 
Anyways, mm-hmm. with that being said, we got some Q&A submissions that we're going to be going over. So we added a Q&A segment to our website. Uh, it's a whole page where you can go and you can drop whatever questions you have on the show. So this could go for just random questions that you might have that you want us to do on a outro. Or if you have questions for a guest that we had on in the past or one that we're talking about having on in the future. I mean, really anything. Just go drop your questions in here uh, and you might get to hear it on the show. Um, so we got a couple here to go through. I'm going to start with uh, one from Mr. Bran Hutchinson because it, it's very relevant to today's topic. Can y'all revisit how to find funnels in flat topo- topographical areas? <laughs> Dang it, man. Ugh. Uh, also, how to scout slash hunt low-lying, swampy, river-bottomish areas with a lot of flat ponds and creeks. Jacob, what do you think about that question? I mean, that's, again, something worth diving into with some other guests um specifically because again this is something that we're still trying to figure out is like the whole river bob hunting um you know the the funnels like just based off some of the funnels that i've seen over the last couple of years of like how deer we're using like in some of these areas like that funnel could literally be like the river's edge uh depending on, let's see um well this is more yeah river bob stuff um like depending on like the area of the country at and what the timber looks like on the river, like where we've been a couple different spots in Alabama and Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to think, have I, uh, Georgia a little bit too, not so much. Um, I'm trying to think anywhere else. Oh, but that's it's kind of different. Um, it seems like all that thick cover, a lot of times, if it's like big open hardwoods next to the river, is right on the river's edge, especially if it's like if the river's going at any direction. Uh, if it's like you're, if the river's going east to west, the north side of the river is going to be a lot thicker on the river's mm-hmm. edge because yep. it's south facing. It's going to get sun so much more time of the year, and that sun can penetrate underneath that canopy further into like off the river than it would be on the south side of the river. Where again, the south side of the river, that riverbank's facing north. When that sun comes over the top of it, it's not going to be able to penetrate nearly as far into that um, into that that timber uh, versus the north side. So I have seen that on areas when we're hunting, say like the north side of a river, and the river's running east to west, like that fun one of those funnels being like the thick habitat edge up against the river. Like those bucks are like running that river. And some of the guys that one of the guys we're going to be interviewing on the podcast, uh, hopefully later on this summer. He does that a ton. Like some of that thickest cover that that funnel that the deer really want to stay in, especially the bucks traveling is right on that water's edge where you might have a buffer. It might only be 10 feet wide or it might be 10 yards wide or maybe even wider than that or just like thicker cover. And that's what those bucks are using. And that's been, you know, killer for, you know, some of the guys we're looking to get on the podcast. Um, And then also like um, other areas, depending on like whether or not I'm trying to see, he didn't really give any kind of details on this this low-lying uh, and swampy river bottoms with flats and creeks. I mean, dude, if you found, there was a, I actually just talked to uh, Wes Moe about this, uh, who we've interviewed a few times on the podcast. And uh, also Jeremy um, Aaron talked about this too. It's like, you have that creek that comes off that river and, and especially like at the mouth of the creek at the river, it's going to be at the widest point. And at some point, as you get, if you follow that creek up off the river, there's going to be a point that's going to be easy for them to cross. And that you'll have a natural crossing right there where the, the, the creek gets shallower, it gets narrower, they can jump the creek or they can cross the creek super easy. And that's another like really good funnel. Um, and yep. Jeremy Aaron actually talked about that a little bit. Uh, that And then also if you have like the really skinny, um, like you have, you know, different fields and stuff on the edge of the, the river. And it goes from like big wood block to another big wood block. And there's a skinny gap 
you know, along the river that's only, you know, 100 yards wide of just timber, like that's going to be a funnel. Now you got to find a funnel inside that funnel in order to make it huntable with like down trees or, you know, the edge of a slough or something like that. Talking but, bow hunting. Yeah. You got, if you got a rifle, you're good to go. If you can see, but you might not, you still might not be able to see through the whole thing. It depends on how thick it is. Yeah. Because um, it seems like some of those skinnier, at least what I found like in Arkansas, those skinnier patches of timber, the sun can penetrate really easily. Uh, at least some stuff I've seen, and it was like crazy thick. I'm like, you're not, you know, they yeah. can never get 80 yards from you. You never know he's there. You might hear him, but that's mm-hmm. it. So, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Um, go, based on what some past guests have said, like where we just went recently scouting, like what we've been talking about on this outro, I was thinking in my mind, I was thinking of what Jeremy was talking about. I was also thinking of Mariah Boggess when we talked to him. I don't even know what episode. That was a while back. But Mariah, when he lived in Mississippi, he just, I mean, laid the smack down on some bucks. I mean, he did, he did so good. Like when he was in college down there. Very dude, good point. Yeah. He, I, he, dude, he put a hurting on him for sure. Like great bucks on public ground in Mississippi. Especially for a guy that's not from there. Uh, yeah. And he just learned it while hey, he was in school there. Dude, he's, yeah, he's legit. Yeah. He 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 always talked about slew heads and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and that's what initially drew me to the spots that we ended up going to was was that and uh, and the beaver dams, yeah, stuff stuff that's that's going to allow them to cross water. You know, they can cross it wherever they want. They can swim really good, but that little feature that makes it easier, kind of like you were just saying, uh, and that that's what we went and looked at this oh, time for yeah. the, this one scouting trip, and uh, and I mean I, I think it worked out. Like I, I found a. Like that spot, if I don't get to go scout another time between now and January, I would go and hunt that spot and actually be very confident hunting it. Yeah. Just especially if I could come in off a boat, because then not only do I have the habitat and terrain working for me in that spot, but I've got the pressure coming off the roads working for me too. Yeah. So there's just a lot going for that spot. Um, so that's why I focused on that. But yeah, we're going to talk to more people about it in the future yeah, and, the, and learn it. The slews are interesting. So like we've talked to guys. Um, uh, Kyler Moppert, a uh, buddy of ours from uh, uh, Mississippi, um, I guess transferred from Mississippi, from, from Louisiana. They talk about down there, it's like some of those sloughs are so shallow. Those deer, they'll cross the slough. Like they, they'll walk right across the slough. The slough might be three, four feet deep, and they'll just go right across it, swim it, or whatever. Yep. Um, but it's like you sometimes, again, you find it like that. And especially like it seems like the more delta regions of the southeast, those deer are so used to water, they just don't care. Yeah. Like water yeah. is nothing to them. And then you go to other parts of like different parts of the, you know, the southeast. And, and I'm sure it's like this in other parts of the country where like there's water, but it's not like everything's flooded out and those deer maybe are less accustomed to it. Yeah. They're the, those deer are the ones that seems like are more well, uh, they're more willing to walk around that water instead of crossing it. Mm-hmm. And like the head of those sloughs are awesome. Like you have that slough that comes right off the river and where that sl- slough stops at, at the very top of it, those deer are going to go around the edge of it and you can hunt it with a bunch of different kind of winds. It's kind of cool. Like I hunted one uh, last year. And, uh, you know, had a little buck come right by me and I was hunting the head of a slew and it was pretty sweet. Um, it works really good. if You can come in by water. If you have to walk the edge of it, you better walk right on the freaking water's edge and hope there is no alligators if you're in the deep, 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 deep (laughs) south. Um, but, uh, yeah, the sloughs are awesome. And also another thing like Andrew's missing or talking about with sloughs or with beaver dams is sometimes some of the sloughs right off the river, because we've seen this in some spots right off the river where that slough is coming off the river. Sometimes a beaver will dam that right there. Yes. So like if it's real narrow, there'll there'll be a beaver dam there, and like you might not even see it on aerial imagery. You're like, okay, cool. Like it just looks like a slough there, and then you get there, and there's a beaver dam. 
that literally merges the earth, the, the, the ground on either side of that slough right at the edge of the river. And that's a spot, again, one of the guests we're going to interview has killed a ton of yeah. deer right on those beaver dams where he'll, he'll find a tree right off the edge of that beaver dam over the river where he can sit there and watch that beaver dam, you know, not 15 yards in front of him and kill really, really nice bucks crossing the beaver dam. Yeah. I'm excited to talk to him. That's going to be a fun one. Uh, this one is from Luke uh, Stats. I think, I think that's how you say your last name, Luke. I apologize if I didn't pronounce that right. Uh, best informational podcast out there. Y'all are killing it. Don't stop the grind. I'd love to see you guys visit uh, a, a certain, certain national, place a certain national forest. in Illinois. Um, I'm on massive bucks, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. Uh, hey, man, it, it's on the list one of these years, I promise you. My question, y'all uh, y'all kill and talk about so many bucks. Can each of you share a photo of your best buck you've harvested, gun or bow, and tell us the backstory on it? Well... We got some videos for you, my friend, that are be coming out here pretty soon. Um, I guess we can't do that right here, but uh, well, I mean, my my best is probably that Vela deer I killed in Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. were talking like just biggest buck, um, and then I don't know if I want to tell the backstory of that deer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's on a podcast. What yeah. podcast episode? That's a that? long time ago. That's it twenty. Was a while that's back. twenty. That was was it 2020? It was 2020. It was a Tennessee velvet hunt. Yeah, yeah. it was 2020. Yeah. Almost died in a tornado trying to get up yeah. there to y'all. It killed him right after a hurricane. A hurricane uh, came, through. came through. Like literally, I was wearing waders and a rain jacket with yeah. my rifle because it was, it was. That's the thing about that hunt. It's, it's you can hunt firearms. Um, yep. And just had an awesome opportunity on a big basher group when they finally came out. Um, but not nothing really towards that. It's just you know, the, I guess the lesson learned there was you know suck it up and get freaking wet because which I mean. I was hunting in waders in a rain jacket in August because yeah. the hurricane, I was sitting in the last band of the hurricane waiting for it to stop because I knew when it stopped, those deer would come back out. and That's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. Yeah. My, mine would be the SOA buck from last year. And uh, ra- rather than rehash the whole story because we've got to get through some more of these questions, uh, if you scroll back in our episode feed to January, like mid-January, it's called, I think, Two Alabama Bucks Down mm-hmm. is the name of the episode. Uh, so go look for it, and the, the whole story's on there, and the video for that is going to be coming out later this summer, so you'll actually be able to watch that one yep. happen. So. Any, any good life lessons or lessons learned on that hunt? Don't don't uh, don't throw a hissy fit and throw your stuff out of the tree, you know, when you're on a hot day, <laughs> uh, when you miss a big buck. So uh, anyways, um, all right, this one is from uh, Brandon Barlow. This one's interesting. Do you think that individual bucks relate to individual does, and does he have to chase that doe, or does she go to him? Finally, does killing that doe make that buck more transient? Curious about other people's findings. Thanks in advance. And that's uh, Instagram is Carolina underscore Reaper 315. Appreciate that. Appreciate the question. That is a fascinating question, man. That is something we need to talk to a biologist about for sure. Um, If I had to just have, like, I don't know. So if I was just going to go with my gut on it, I'd say like, yeah, they're probably, they, they probably do relate to individual does, you know, like they probably do know some like does in their area that they're familiar with. And it's kind of like we've talked about with several guests in the past, uh, where a buck, you know, will, or or there, there'll be a certain doe that comes in at the same time every year. And like, maybe there's a buck that chase, like there's two deer that interact with each other because they live close by. And so that pattern, will play out year after year mm-hmm. just because they live in proximity to each other, you know? So Wes Moe, uh told me about this. This is interesting. He brought this up. Um, I'm trying to think who was Wes talking to. It might have been Tony Myers or another guy. He was telling me about this at the uh, 
at the uh, Weaver, Weaver event. event talking about, you know, in cattle, he's seen like with cattle, you know, that, that head bull. Oh yeah. He's he's like the young bulls that chase the, chase the cows around. He's like, he's not what he, he waits till they come in the heat and they come to him. Yep. And he said, he's seen the exact same thing happen with big white tails in some areas where, and also it might've been uh, the Jolly brothers talked about that mm-hmm. seeing a buck bedded on a ridge. It actually was the Jolly brothers. Um, but anyways, Long story short, some of these guys uh, have experience where it seems like a buck bedding in a certain spot and does strategically going to them, going to that mature buck, and that buck just bring her, and he's not chasing her. Like, he's just yeah. in his spot. Yeah. And it seems like they're doing it more so in areas with uh, higher deer numbers where the buck truly doesn't have to chase anything. Like, there's so many does in the area, and it seems like it's always, like, the older age class buck. Now, I'm not saying that happens everywhere. I haven't personally seen that. Uh, but then again, I haven't been hunting for as many decades as some of these other guys. So Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but, it, but it is a very interesting point. And, again, I wonder if, if there's any data behind that uh, and it would be probably more uh, anecdotal when it comes to like the studies, if anything's ever been you know looked at that. Um, I know West Mo. We've mentioned this a couple times. West Mo has killed, I think it was two or three bucks over the the back of a very specific doe that had a certain like throat patch, ear color. Like I don't know, if she was pieball, something that he knew was the same deer uh, in the same tree in the same spot. I think over, I think it was in three seasons, killed two mm-hmm. or three bucks over her before she died. Um, or disappeared. So, so do you think killing that doe makes that buck more transient? I would say that probably depends on the the area. Yeah, it depends on how many does there are. Because it's not like that's the only doe. Yeah, there's no way to answer that. I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, again, if, if it's if it's high deer numbers, I don't think it really matters. I think mm-hmm. he's just gonna be like there's there's other does out there. But yeah. I think I think it's yeah. when you find like a. A really old mature doe, which everybody's experienced. Everybody's seen that doe that looks all long like, nose like, Sally. Like she looks like a buck, but you know, because she's uh-huh. you know six seven years old, got a huge chest on her, you know, big long nose, whole nine yards, and um, I'm sure those are the does that you know after going through you know four or five or six you know breeding cycles in years that she probably maybe has a specific you know buck. I don't know. I don't know the psychology of a deer. It's yeah. interesting. It's a fascinating question, though. I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, this one is from Jacob Samuelson. How do you know how many trees to cut when you're trying to regrow native grasses in a heavily wooded area? Before we even try to answer this, I'm just going to say, go <laughs> to Land and Legacy. Go to their podcast, their YouTube, their website. They're going to be your resource for that, 100%. Also, Native Habitat Project, you probably message him and uh, or Land and Legacy, and then they'll be able to actually get you a really good. I'll say, uh, like enough, probably enough trees where, like, if you were to cut one of the remaining trees, it wouldn't hit another tree. It's so a savanna cut. It's a savanna cut. So there's no, you know, your trees. If one were to fall, it's not going to hit another tree. If that makes sense. So most of the trees should be gone. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't want to answer. I have no experience. I just. I'll say this: our farm or Anthony's farm that we just did the podcast on. Uh, the video is going to come out on it. You will see like a pretty damn good, at, you know, representation of what you're asking for. Um, and then also, I, I would love. I got to talk to Alan about. It. I'm going to say on the podcast. I want to see if we can go to his Tennessee property and see oh. what he, so, see what he's done there. And, and film some of that because he's done that again heavily hardwood timbered area did a very heavy select cut on it and it's been unbelievable for him and how it's produced you know really large white yeah, tails 100%. Uh, and more turkeys way more turkeys he said is on that property turkeys for days um so interesting yeah. uh all right this is from gunner whitman hey guys big fan of the show listen to probably 75 percent of the episodes and still working towards 100 percent. we appreciate that uh been listening for a couple years now and ever since i decided to move from uh, to Georgia from Colorado, I've had some good success 
and great hunts in Northeast Georgia the last two seasons, and your show has de- definitely helped. I bounced around to a lot of different WMAs throughout the season, hunted more than a dozen so far. I enjoy this tactic for my home state, but I want to start hunting Alabama, and my strategy there is going to be to pick one WMA within about a three-hour drive and learn that WMA the best I can. Absolutely. I want to find a place I can make one or two short trips to every year when I get a three-day weekend. Only other criteria is that it's uh, got to have a campground. Um, I'm a Georgia, Georgia hunter. I've looked into blah, blah, blah. I'm going to read those <laughs> on here. Um, also say I'm a deer hunter. I'm not a big buck hunter. I'm definitely not asking for pins or anything. Just want to know in your opinion, based on experience, what you've heard. Do you think I can't say that on the podcast? Should I look somewhere else? Uh, I'll say this. So you, he's asking about a couple specific WMAs here in Alabama, um, and, w- and which one he should focus on. And everyone he's mentioned so far, like they're not bad options. They're not bad options. Uh, you're going to be dealing with here, – here's here's what I'll say. If you're coming from Georgia and you're looking to get for that January rut, you're, you're looking to get some bang for your buck, I guess pun intended, um, I would actually I would actually suggest that maybe you drive a little bit further into mm-hmm. Alabama. Um, one of the places you mentioned is pretty far into Alabama. The, the further you can get from the state line, the better. Because all, all of the WMA – and this goes for any state really – the all those all the WMAs that are real close to state lines, you're gonna get a lot of non resident hunters coming across. And, and and man, there's one place on here that we hunted a couple years ago. If y'all go back and hear the episode that that the hunt that broke my will, yeah. it was on that WMA. And dude and, and, and Gunner whew. and Gunner's got mentioned here. It's an awesome place, but dude, you talk about like the only one of the only management areas in Alabama that probably I don't know if they hit a thousand hunters on gun hunts, but it's really it's close. close. It's super close. I yeah. mean, it's it's the most hunting pressure I've ever seen, but it's known, you know, for not only good quality deer, but just a ton of deer. Yeah, it's got a lot um, of deer. But that's what I'm saying is like it, it's it's a close to the state line. Yeah, if, if you're coming to Alabama, I would really look at like if you're in Georgia, like great example in Georgia. Depending on where you're at in Georgia, because Georgia's kind of like Alabama, they get crazy ruts. You know, they get like southeast Georgia ruts super early, like really early in the fall, all the way up to you know having hunts that in, in ruts that probably go into late November uh, in certain areas. If you could get away from Georgia in this in the month of December, and maybe not wait to January, I think you'll find you know some areas that have high quality. You'll, have, you'll find areas in Alabama that have high quality deer, good deer numbers but also aren't going to get the pressure like they get when Georgia closes out in January. Yeah. Like some of the areas that you had mentioned that are, again, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just you get different management areas on the state line that are good. But if you can find some other parts of Alabama, again, kind of get away from the state line, like Andrew was saying, and focus on the month of December. Again, when it kind of slows down for y'all back home, you can find some really good activity in Alabama. And again, I always yeah. say like Alabama, if you're like trying to expand you know, hunting opportunities in other states and like you truly have like a November or early December rut, Alabama's an awesome opportunity to be able to come to. And there's a there's not nearly as much public land as like you have in other states. Um like I see the guy the <laughs> The guys from Arkansas hate that we talk about Arkansas, even though we don't talk about it that much. But it's, again, I used to live there, so it's kind of you know my second home state. But like Arkansas and Georgia have a ton of acres, like millions of acres of public. Alabama, I think we're at I think it's eight hundred thousand acres, yeah, nine hundred. So it's it's a fraction of other states, but you have a decent amount of public land throughout the state, so you can really find areas that you like. But going back to what you were talking about, uh, Gunner. I would highly recommend like doing some research. You can find stuff on social media. You can uh, listen to the podcast. You can, you know, go online. I would find an area that has the habitat that you're comfortable hunting in 
and something that, like you said, you can kind of expand into. Because if mm-hmm. you can, tr- if you're only going to come for a few days, you know, a three day weekend, and you're only going to come a couple times. I wouldn't try to go to d- different locations. I would try to find one major area, like you're saying, and really try to learn it, um, and then expand out from there once you yeah. kind of figure that out. And I wouldn't limit yourself to like three hours. Like if there's a place that you're really interested in, but it's like four and a half, I'd just suck it up and I'd drive a little bit further. You know, if you're if you're already going to come over here and stay, stay the night and stay for a full weekend. Um, I would, I would just, I'd just say, I'll, I'd look at everything. I'd take everything into consideration, yeah. you know, like we can't say a lot on here because well, you're, you're naming like specific things. Well, it's like, but. I'll give you an example. I've done the same thing in Tennessee, uh, back when I was, uh, not doing the podcast full time. Um, there were there's management areas in Tennessee that I always like to hunt, and they're pretty freaking far. I mean, one of them's like five and a half, almost six hours, and I would still do it in a three day weekend. You know, I'd leave out on Friday, it would suck. I would drive until 11 o'clock, get there, uh, you know, sleep in the truck most times. And then I'd hunt all day Saturday, I'd hunt Sunday, and sometimes if it was really good, I'd hunt Sunday afternoon because it'd be kind of late in the season, it'd get dark at 5 o'clock, and I just know I'm not going to get home till midnight, but I'm going to drive, you know, five, six hours home and then, you know, be back. Um, and, you know, it sucked because, you know, Monday morning came around, you're like, oh, this this, this, this sucks, <laughs> but it is what it is. Just take enough, get, get some caffeine. And, yeah, man. You know, if get you some energy drinks. Yeah, but uh, definitely I wouldn't just limit yourself to just three hours. Now, if you have kids and everything, it might complicate some stuff. Uh, I, I can't speak on that, <laughs> but uh, definitely, you know, I would not just worry about like just three hours being the limit by far. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd go for it, and I, I have a, I have a kid. I would I would still do that for sure. Like again, if you're if you're taking the time to like break away for for three or four days, like dude, give give it all you got. Um, all right, this one's from Avery Smith. Will the time not changing have an impact on this year's season? Did they do the daylight savings thing? What I wonder what city he's talking about. You, you just assume uh, Alabama. He's well, well, so Alabama passed it, but there was a federal bill to like get rid of it. Okay, because the way Alabama works is they voted to stay on daylight savings time, but the federal government has to mandate uh, it. It, it. They have to do away with daylight or something like that. It has to happen at the federal level for the Alabama law to kick in. Mm-hmm. So the, and it, it was, it was in Congress. I'm going to look it up real quick. I don't, I don't know what happened to it. I don't know if it ever got passed. Like I heard it was getting blocked. I would love nothing more than for that to happen. I would love nothing more than for the stupid time to not change in deer season. Because here in Alabama, we live right on the edge of central and eastern time. And that means that when we fall back in the fall, all of a sudden it is getting dark at 4.30 in the afternoon here. Like legit. And I know it's different for everybody. So after checking on uh, whatever website you just looked at, looks like that that bill stalled out. And uh, I don't I don't know if it's dead or if it's just kind of hanging out. You know, waiting to have something done. Call with it. it's it's stuck in a house. Call your local call house. Your, call your yeah. call your representative. Your, your house representative. Yep. In right. Whatever district you're in. Tell them Har- to get harass, get the lead out. Harass the hell out. Yeah. Come on. All right. Last one. Corey Bowen uh, says, "Do y'all still look at people's properties on Onyx and give them advice as to ideas to hunt and things like that?" If so, where do I find information about that? Thanks. I enjoy the podcast and YouTube. Not a great hunter by any stretch, but definitely trying to learn. Me too, Corey. Appreciate uh, appreciate you writing in with that. We're all just trying to learn here. Um, we do still offer that uh, through our Patreon account. So you can go to Patreon. We have a tier on there called the Collaborator tier. And uh, if you go click on that, you'll see more information about it. But basically what we do is you send us a property... We take a look at it um, on the maps, 
and we actually make you a full video of us going through all of the pins that we drop on the place. So Jacob and I both map scout it. We'll drop all the pins on it. And we'll tell you in the video why we dropped that pin in that location, whether it's something that, that we have from our own experience, like, hey, this is what this is similar to something that happened to me one time, or this is something that a guest talked about. So this directly relates to something like that Jeremy Aaron was talking about. You know, if you're like if you're in Flatland and we point something out, we'll say, Hey, this is kind of exactly what Jeremy Aaron was talking about in episode so and so. So we'll tie it into that stuff. At the end, we'll send that video to you. It only goes to you. It doesn't go out, you know, to everybody else. And then we'll get on a phone call with you and actually talk it all over. Uh, did I miss anything there? No. And they can go find that on our Patreon. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoors Men. And it's the called the Collaborator Tier. Yes, sir. Uh, so you can go find that. And I'm sure you think we can put that in the link down yeah. below. Yeah, so I'll link it below. If you're interested in that, you can go down to the, the link down below in the show notes. And we'll have it linked there so you can go check it out. Um, but yeah, we appreciate everybody. It's been a uh, collaborator in the past. We've had some awesome success. Actually had uh, one of our collaborators last year have an unbelievable year uh, mm-hmm. on his property, uh, kind of using kind of what we talked about and went and killed uh, one hell of a nice buck. Yeah, buddy. So, so cool, man. Yep. Well, that is uh, all the questions we're going to do this week. Uh, like I said, that question and answer form is up on the website. If you want to go leave a question, I'll also link it in the show notes as well. So you can go down there and leave a question and uh, we'll start doing these. If we get enough questions, we'll do it every week. Yeah, I, I like this is fun. Yeah, on the outro breakdown episodes. On the outro breakdown Thursday, whatever's. <laughs> we're not good at branding, okay? Uh, anyways, uh, appreciate everybody listening to this one. It's been fun. Hope to see y'all at the Mobile Hunters Expo starting tomorrow. The day after this comes out is when that Mobile Hunters Expo is actually starting. So we'll be there. Come by, see us in the booth. Um, uh, hope to see a lot of you guys there and shake your hand. Um, you got anything else, Jacob? Uh, no, I'll say this. Uh, hopefully if everything works out, we're going to have our buddy Scott Seals at the event. And I think he'll be there, I know, on Saturday. And I believe he's going to be bringing the Wizard Buck. So he he's a yeah. listener podcast. He's been a guest on the podcast a few times. He's the one that actually killed the Wizard, which is a buck that uh, Andrew and really our buddy Michael was hunting pretty heavily uh, back in 2019, 2020? 2020? Yeah. And um, anyways, y'all probably have heard that story. We did a ton of episodes on that deer, and it's a monster. And I think he's going to bring it, and he's going to have it in the booth with us. Yeah. So... It's going to be awesome. But yeah, appreciate everybody listening. Uh, appreciate all the viewers too. Again, all the podcasts, both the outro and the main episodes are going to be put on YouTube as well, guys, for the video podcast. So uh, everything's being filmed. So uh, if you've been enjoying this, you can actually go over and uh, check out the YouTube channels. You can just search the Southern Outdoors on YouTube. You can find the video uh, tab for the podcast there and check that out. Appreciate all that support. And uh, guys, we'll catch you back here on the next episode from the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who will wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year, and guess what? This year, it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th, 
through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.